Section 25 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 2. The Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 1. A brief announcement appeared in the local columns of a Baltimore newspaper, published on the morning of February 3, 1872, stating that W.S. Goss, residing at number 314 North Utah Street, had been burned to death the previous evening in a house on the York Road about four miles out. The fire was supposed to have been caused by an explosion of some chemicals with which he was experimenting. The building in which the accident occurred was entirely consumed. The charred remains were taken out of the burning building by Mr. Utterzook, a brother-in-law, aided by some neighbors. Four days later, the attention of several life insurance companies was called to the incident thus briefly stated, through notifications served upon them in the following form. Baltimore, February 7, 1872. This is to notify of the death of W.S. Goss, which occurred in the following manner. He was in the habit of going to a place in the country where he was engaged in making samples of a substitute for India rubber. On the evening of his death, he went out as usual, in company with his brother-in-law, Mr. William Utterzook and when night came on, he lit his lamp, one which he has used for some time. The lamp burned for a while, then suddenly went out. He lit it several times again, but it refused to burn. Mr. Yu told him he would go to a neighbor's house and get another lamp, and while he was gone, the lamp exploded and set fire to the house, and W.S.G. was burned to death. The coroner held an inquest and rendered the following verdict that W.S. Goss came to his death by the explosion of an oil lamp. A.C. Goss, brother of W.S. Goss. The insurance companies directly interested in this matter were the underwriters of the following policies, all of which were upon the life of Winfield Scott Goss, for the benefit of his wife, Eliza Waters Goss. First, an ordinary life policy for $5,000, written by the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York, dated May 21, 1868. Second, a similar policy for $5,000 in the Continental Life Insurance Company of New York, dated May 26, 1871. Third, an accident policy in the sum of $10,000 in the Travelers Insurance Company of Hartford, dated October 18, 1871. Fourth, a life policy for the sum of $5,000 in the Knickerbocker Life Insurance Company of New York, dated January 26, 1872. The insurance companies regarded the circumstances of the case with suspicion, and they at once made inquiry into the facts. At the commencement of the investigation, there was no incident or fact which of itself was conclusive of fraud but there were minor tokens which, grouped together or viewed in their relations to one another, led to conviction that the mystery surrounding the fire needed explanation. 
it seemed highly improbable that a strong, athletic man, such as Goss was known to be, should be overpowered in the manner described, and unable to make his escape from the burning building. The plausible stories of Utterzook, and of the brother A.C. Goss, tend to convey the impression that they knew too much. At an inquest held by the coroner upon the next day following the fire, and again at an interview with the insurance agents soon afterwards, Utterzook testified that he was a brother-in-law of Goss, they having married sisters, and he resided at number 167 Conway Street, Baltimore, where he had lived during the last six years, that on Friday afternoon, the second day of February, 1872, he met Goss by appointment between Biddle and Howard Streets in the city of Baltimore, when they at once proceeded on the York Road to a cottage on the premises of a Mr. Lowndes, where Goss had been experimenting in the manufacture of some substance to be used as a substitute for India rubber. They walked part of the way and then rode in a Waverly horse railway car to the terminus of the line. This brought them to within three-quarters of a mile from the cottage. On leaving the car they went into a store, where they procured a gallon of kerosene oil, carrying the oil in a wicker-covered demijohn, which they had left at the store some three days previously. Goss also purchased a bottle of whiskey. They then walked to the residence of one Engel, where they borrowed an axe, and thence they both proceeded directly to the cottage, where they built a fire in a stove, which was in one of its rooms. This was about half-past three o'clock in the afternoon. From that time until dark, Goss visited the cellar of the cottage some three or four times. About dusk, Goss filled a coal-oil lamp in Utterzook's presence, using the oil from the demijohn brought there that afternoon. The lamp would hold about a quart of oil, and was filled full. At about six o'clock, he, Utterzook, went to Engel's house and returned the axe which he had borrowed, and remained there at supper with the Engel family. After supper, he and Gottlieb Engel went to the cottage, where Goss, Engel, and himself all drank whiskey from the bottle which Goss had obtained that afternoon. About an hour afterwards, the light of the lamp went out. One of them lighted a piece of candle and attempted to relight the lamp with the candle blaze, but was unsuccessful. Engel proposed to cut off a portion of the wick, and Utterzook offered to get a new wick from the store. Goss suggested that a lamp be obtained from Engel's house, whereupon Utterzook and Engel left the cottage for that purpose. Arriving at Engel's house, they remained there from fifteen to twenty minutes, when Utterzook, starting to return, discovered that the cottage was on fire. Together with Gottlieb Engel and Louis Engel, he ran to the scene of the fire as fast as possible, and on arrival found the flames bursting from the windows and the roof. He made no attempt to enter the house, nor to his knowledge did any one else attempt an entrance, on account of the fierceness of the flames. After he had been at the fire about half an hour, he sent Louis Engel to Goss's residence, number 314 Utah Street, to inform the family of the fire and of his fears that Goss was burned to death. About an hour after his arrival at the fire, he expressed his fears to Mr. Lowndes that Goss was in the burning building. 
The roof and a portion of the sides of the building had then fallen in. An effort was at once made by the spectators present to ascertain if Goss had been burned with the building, which led to the discovery of a human body so burned as to be past recognition or identification. He, Utterzook, had visited every room in the cottage during the afternoon of that day, and he knew there was no one in the house during that time except himself and Goss, and no one entered the house afterwards except Gottlieb Engel up to the time when he and Engel went for a lamp. He also knew that there was no dead body in the house, and that no dead body had been brought to the house that day or evening or at any other time. He had no knowledge which led him to believe the body found in the ruins was the body of any other person than Winfield S. Goss. In giving his story of the occurrence, Utterzook manifested a willingness to mention every detail known to him, and was ready to account for and explain apparent inconsistencies. At no time did he betray an uneasiness under his close cross-questioning by the insurance men, before whom he voluntarily presented himself for the purpose. The main features of his account of the fire were corroborated by other and disinterested parties. The Engel family were visited and interrogated. They lived about three hundred yards distant from the cottage, and had known Goss and Utterzook during the preceding six months. They were evidently an honest, industrious German family, who would not knowingly be a party to any deception. It is certain that they were credulous, and did not doubt what seemed to them, from the evidence of their senses, that Goss was burned up at the cottage fire. Gottlieb Engel was a simple-minded, hard-working young man of twenty-three years. He saw Goss and Utterzook on the afternoon of February 2nd, and loaned Utterzook the axe. He said that Goss asked him to come to the cottage in the evening, after supper, as Utterzook was going back to the city after a while, and Goss would like to have him there for company. While eating his supper, Utterzook came in and returned the borrowed axe. Mrs. Engel, Gottlieb's mother, inquired where Goss was, and Utterzook replied that he was at the cottage. Utterzook further said to them that Goss wanted him to stay with the Engel family about an hour and a half, so Mrs. Engel invited him to a seat at their supper table. After supper, Utterzook and Gottlieb went to the cottage. On arriving there, they were admitted by Goss, who unlocked the door from the inside. They went into the southeast room of the cottage, where there was a fire in the stove. Gottlieb remembered seeing a coal oil lamp burning in an adjoining room, where there was also a workbench. Goss brought the lamp and put it on the floor of the room where they were. Gottlieb went into the room where the workbench was, but into no other, except the room he first entered. While Gottlieb was there, Goss went several times into a third room, alone, closing the door after him each time. Every time he went to that room, he took the lamp with him. The last time he came out, he remarked, I wish I had my fortune. Goss went to the cellar once while Gottlieb was at the cottage. The entrance to the cellar was on the outside of the house. At one time, while Goss was entering the room where Gottlieb and Utterzook were, the light of the lamp which he was carrying went out. Goss then called to Utterzook to bring a light, 
and Utterzook took him a lighted paper, but did not light the lamp with it. Utterzook then lighted a piece of candle, and with it attempted to light the lamp, but the tallow ran upon the lampwick, which prevented its lighting. Gottlieb offered to remedy the trouble by changing the ends of the wick, but Goss objected. Utterzook proposed to get a new wick from the store, but Goss said a lamp had better be obtained from Engel's house, when Gottlieb offered to go and get one. He, at the same time, invited Goss to go with him and get his supper. Goss refused to go, but insisted on Utterzook going with him. Gottlieb and Utterzook then went back to the Engel house. After they had been in the house about ten minutes, Mrs. Engel said to Utterzook, You had better go now, she thinking Goss was left alone in the dark. But Utterzook delayed going, and after a while went into the kitchen for a drink of water. Gottlieb was close behind him, and noticed the reflection of the light of the fire. They stepped out upon the porch, when Gottlieb said it was the cottage on fire. Utterzook replied, Scott has illuminated. Gottlieb at once ran as fast as he could to the fire, and outran Utterzook, who caught up with him after he had slackened his pace. While at the fire, Utterzook said to Gottlieb, I think Scott is in the house, when Gottlieb replied that he had probably run out of the building. At the time, Gottlieb did not believe that Goss was in the building, and he returned home before the body was recovered. Utterzook came to the Engel house that evening and told the family that Goss had been burned to death and his body found. Upon interrogating A. Campbell Goss, the brother of W. S. Goss, as to his whereabouts during the night of the fire, he manifested extreme caution and was guarded in his replies. He preferred to submit his written statement covering the time in question, and he did so as follows, the paper being subscribed and sworn to under date of February 26, 1872. On Friday at about noon, near one o'clock, of the 2nd of February, 1872, my brother, W. S. Goss, and I were with each other, and we parted at about that time on the corner of Fayette and St. Paul Streets. He told me he was going to his country place, where he was at work making samples and specimens of his substitute for India rubber. I asked him to let me go out with him, but he requested me to remain in the city and go see Mr. Clark, a portrait painter in Mulberry Street, and collect some money Clark owed him for frames. I promised and did so. This is the last time I saw Scott. Before we parted, he told me to remain at my boarding house number 41 North Calvert Street, the next morning, and he would call for me, and we were going to see a Washville friend, James Thompson at Locust Point. He left me to go home to his dinner. I went to mine at my boarding house. Then in the afternoon went to see Clark. Was at supper as usual. After tea, was in my room about an hour writing a letter home. Finished that, spent the evening with my landlady's family, as I often did, retired to my room, went to bed, was there all night, and the next morning was waiting for my brother as promised, and while waiting received a letter from Mr. Way, a friend of Scott's, telling me a great misfortune had happened to my family. I immediately went to his house on Utah Street, and there learned of my brother's death.
I went immediately to where this occurred, and found it was too true. About a week after this, I went out with a friend to the wreck, and we looked a while for his watch, keys, etc., but did not find them. A day or two afterwards, I went and made a thorougher search, and found his watch, chain, and keys in the debris. A.C. Goss. This statement of A.C. Goss was subjected to a thorough test as to its truthfulness, and was found to be false in several material points. The lady who kept the boarding house at number 41 Calvert Street had a distinct recollection of the night of the fire, and of the fact that A.C. Goss was not at supper at her house that evening. After tea, she saw him in her parlor. It was then past nine o'clock. The next morning after the fire, the burning of A.C. Goss's brother was the subject of conversation at her house, and the fact that Mr. Goss was not home to supper was noticed and spoken of at the time. The daughter of this landlady also had a precise recollection upon that point. She was at home, in the parlor, when Mr. Goss came in at about half-past nine o'clock that evening. He had made an engagement on that Friday morning to spend the evening with her. Instead of keeping it, he left a note for her, saying that he was obliged to meet his brother and would not be back until rather late, and was sorry to be obliged to break the engagement. That he was not at home to supper that evening was a fact observed, spoken of at the time, and explained by the young lady upon the information given her in the note written by Campbell Goss. The proprietor of a livery stable also had a clear remembrance of the night of the fire. He was applied to that Friday, soon after dinner, by a man who wished to engage a horse and buggy to use that evening. The man said he would call for the horse about seven o'clock. He wanted to drive a short distance out into the country. The livery proprietor did not know the person at the time, but a few days afterwards he saw and identified A.C. Goss as the same person. When A.C. Goss came to the stable, his name and residence were asked, and he gave his name as A.C. Arden, number 314 North Utah Street, which name and address were noted down at the time. It afterwards appeared that Arden was the name of the father-in-law of W.S. Goss, and the street and number given was his residence at that time. He came for the horse about dusk, and did not return until a little past nine o'clock. On his return, he gave a pair of buckskin gloves to a hostler at the stable. Of the identity of A.C. Goss, with the party who hired the horse and buggy that evening, the livery proprietor had not a shadow of doubt. When he first thus identified A.C. Goss, he spoke of the gloves which his hostler had said were given to him, and which, on the contrary, it was supposed might have been left in the buggy by accident. But Goss denied all knowledge of the matter. At this stage of the investigation, it became quite reasonable to infer that A.C. Goss drove out to some point near the cottage, where he met his brother, W.S. Goss, by appointment, and drove him to a railway passenger station. The time occupied, considering the distances and all the facts, fitted exactly his thus going from and returning to his boarding house. The finding of certain personal effects in the debris, at the place where the body lay, was regarded with suspicion, 
when it was ascertained that the place previously had been searched, carefully and thoroughly, for these very articles. Early upon the morning subsequent to the fire, and before the spot had been visited by any other person, a Mr. J.C. Smith searched for the watch and ring which he had seen Mr. Goss wear, but failed to find them. This Mr. Smith was a junk dealer, and had had much experience in searching for lost or hidden articles of value. He knew Goss personally, and he purposely went to search among the embers for the recovery of these or any other articles which Goss might have had upon his person. It began to be whispered about as very strange that no trace of such articles could be discovered when Mr. A.C. Goss, more than a week afterwards, quote, made a thorough search, end quote, and found the watch, chain, and keys. There were other noticeable points in the early investigations of this case, of which we need only mention two. First, it was ascertained that Goss had drawn from the bank a small balance due him on his deposit therein, and thus closed his account the day before the fire. Secondly, it was noticed that letters testamentary had been taken by Mrs. Eliza W. Goss on the 6th day of March, 1872, indicating that W. S. Goss had executed a last will and testament prior to his cremation. The document was found on file in the office of the Register of Wills for Baltimore City. In it, Goss apologetically says, quote, "...being desirous to settle my worldly affairs, and thereby be the better prepared to leave this world, when it shall please God to call me hence, end quote. He therefore does make and publish his last will. He directs his body to be decently buried at the discretion of his executrix, and devises all his estate, quote, real, personal, and mixed, end quote, to his wife, whom he constitutes the sole executrix of his will. It could not be learned that the testator left any estate which might be denominated real or personal, nor anything whatsoever save the mixed mystery of his taking off. While all these disclosures tended to strengthen the suspicion of fraud, there was absolutely nothing in the way of direct demonstration. In the meantime, the usual proof and claim papers had been submitted to the insurance companies concerned, and the claims were rapidly maturing. Mrs. Goss at once placed her policies in the hands of able attorneys, who wrote each company as follows, quote, Our instructions are to act promptly in the presentation of the claim, and on the institution of a suit, if the matter is to be taken into the courts. Mrs. Goss would decline any offer of less than the whole amount of the policy, end quote. The companies refused to pay at maturity, and suits were promptly instituted under each policy. End of section 25